Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica studio, the host of this show. We have a lot to discuss in the world of tennis, so strap in. Mark Petchy, the veteran TC broadcaster, former British number one and all-around great, great follow on Twitter. Petchy joins the show again to discuss the Laver Cup in Vancouver, where he was a reporter doing sideline interviews to discuss the future of the event, team competitions in general, Maria Sakari's 1,000-level title in Guadalajara, and what to expect when Coco Goff, Holger Runa, and Carlos Alcaraz return to the court. And then Joel Drucker joins the show for the first time, the tennis journalist, International Hall of Fame's official historian. He writes for Tennis.com. He's written a few books. He hosts a podcast called Three on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network with Gil Gross and Amy Lundy. Joel sits down in person to discuss a lot of different things about the history of the game, comparing different eras, how his tennis odyssey started, why the future of the sport is in good hands, all that and more with esteemed tennis journalist Joel Drucker. It's Mark Petchy up first, and it's Tennis Channel Inside, and it starts right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. We're on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios talking remotely now. And, and who says there isn't much to talk about late September in the tennis world? Mark Petchy coming back to the show, uh, settled into uh, his place back overseas after an outstanding Labor Cup on his end and the production team's end. Mark, welcome back to the show. I always know we can find stuff to talk about in the tennis world. I think this time we don't have to look too hard, but thank you for coming back. That's uh, always a pleasure. I, I think even, I'll tell you what, mid, mid-December mid get me back on. I'm sure we'll be talking about something then. Yeah. It never stops. It doesn't. Just when you think you have some downtime, you don't. But we love it uh, here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Starting with the last Labor Cup, it was a one-sided affair. The sixth edition in seven years won by Team World, their second. They've won the last two. You were at the event before we get into the tennis and all the drama that went down. What is that event like from the broadcaster's perspective? You getting to do a lot of the sideline reporting too, which is not normally done at all in tennis, talking to coaches, talking to players mid-match. But what was the event like, the, the vibe around Vancouver, which was a great host city, if you could explain that experience? As an event from a production point of view, it's arguably, well, I don't even think it's arguably, I think it's probably the best out there because you know, you've got 46 cameras, you've got so much access backstage to the players they're obviously a lot more relaxed in terms of what they're willing to sort of let you see what they're willing to say um it's a super serious event from that point of view i think it does and it has done ever since prague in 2017 showcase tennis in a very kind of different way very upbeat very high tempo i think it's become you know a good template for how people can can actually do tennis and from a fan point of view, I mean, almost 20,000 people there on a Friday afternoon and Friday evening when Coldplay were there, I think is testament just to how much tennis fans, certainly in cities like Vancouver that don't have a lot of tennis, um, absolutely gravitate towards um, the event. I mean, you can always make the argument. You looked at Davis Cup the week before. Um, obviously, you, you had Felix and, and Milos warming the bench this week. Milos warming the bench. Felix playing great again, which was obviously awesome to see. But, you know, Davis Cup had a big problem on the days when obviously nations that weren't playing at home to fill stadiums. Here you had a situation at Labour Cup where you didn't have any home players um, and it was absolutely rammed to the rafters. So, you know, for me, this year was a big litmus test in terms of what the fans wanted and they came out in their droves. Yeah, that's a big point that I didn't really think of. You know, these non-tennis tournament hosting cities, getting an event is huge. You know, having a local guy, obviously, but the schedule, I mean, we know it's just there's so much fighting going on for any sliver of real estate. So to have an event in Vancouver, which is a great sports town, was big in itself. And you know that, you know, the, the having Felix play, which we can get into, is uh, another part of this. And, and that's kind of where the, I don't want to say existential crisis, but what goes on forward for this event, which was st- founded on Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal yeah. being doubles partners, 
So I got to talk to you about the Felix Monfils match because that kind of was, I think, the popping off point of some different approaches, shall we say. And the, and the gist of it being, and you can expand on this, but Felix taking it a little more serious than Monfils, who says, look, I'm here to have fun. I want to entertain the fans. Felix didn't necessarily agree with that approach. It's all water under the, under the bridge. They all like each other. We know that. But that moment was kind of a tipping off point between, I guess, two different perspectives on this Labor Cup. Yeah, it was a tipping point for, for Gail. I don't think it was a tipping point for 99% of us that have play, have, play, uh, have, have watched and played and been involved in this event. Ever since 2017, that was always um, the narrative from the, the people that were negative about the event. It was uh, it's a glorified exo. That's all it is. And ever since the, uh, the Prague sort of finale, everybody realized just how important the event was to the players that were there. You, you're, you know, I'm not going to tell everyone to have whatever perspective they want, but the reality is for all of us that have been involved with the, this uh, event since day one, it has been super serious. There have been moments of genuine tension, uh, real animosity between the teams. Geneva was a classic case in point. Um, and, and I think Gail... Uh, perhaps just got the wrong end of the stick at that particular moment. And, and obviously things fell apart for him and, and Team Europe, to be honest, from that point on. You know, this, this event cannot, cannot thrive on it being an exhibition and it hasn't done it hasn't built a it hasn't built the kind of theme and it hasn't kind of built uh the reputation mm -hmm. on it being an exo um and that was obviously a yeah. disappointment for 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 europe um and well capitalized on it big time yeah absolutely we know that the head-to-heads count and we say what you want about it the head-to-heads count going forward the money is great for the players that are there they're they're definitely in it to win it and you know this the, the analogy I draw, Mark, is this is very this is a very good idea. It's like the NHL NBA All-Star Games where the top players are there. It's a great idea. It's a great concept to get these best players in the world all together. But the, the point that I'm making is you have to continually tweak these things. You have to keep making it better. You can't just have one edition of the Labor Cup for infinity. So that's going to be the challenge I think that this tournament has. How do we keep the players interested? How do we keep improving this event? Oh, I think it's a great point. I think there's a number of things that obviously that will be getting sort of thrown around, I'm sure, in the discussion rooms where they're above our pay grade, Mitch. But <laughs> yeah. there will definitely be uh, there will be definitely some yeah. discussions, obviously, going to Berlin next. I think yeah. the point that you made and I kind of made at the start, it's very valuable to tennis to have this event go into particularly non-tennis playing cities. Mm -hmm. uh, we know on the tour just how locked up things are for the big tournaments. It's very hard to... It's very hard to get into other events. So, you know, in other cities because of the way the Masters events are kind of done. So from that point of view, it's mm -hmm. for me personally, that's where the Labour Cup has, has huge appeal. What it does need, of course, it needs all the top Europeans to play. And I think what we saw from Team World is that if you don't put out your strongest team, we're going to crush you mm -hmm. and we're going to beat you hard and we're not going to care about it at yeah. all. And I hope that that is a kind of a really sort of big yeah. inflection point for the Europeans mm -hmm. to get involved again in Labour Cup from next year. The other discussion, Mitch, which is obviously going to get on the table at some point, you need to build a narrative. You need to build a story with um, a new event. I don't think Labour Cup would have survived if you'd done it once every two years um, or once every four years, a bit like the actual World Cup. Mm -hmm. I think you need to bring a, build a storyline with some great moments, which we've had through Roger and Rafa from Novak playing the great good by from last year, uh, Rafa and uh, uh, Roger playing doubles together, Novak and Roger playing doubles together. Moments that you won't ever really see on the main tour have happened yeah. at Labour Cup, and you needed to make those happen very quickly. There has to be a discussion about whether potentially with the congested tennis calendar that this event is going to work better every two years rather than annually. Yeah, no, th those are great points. It's hard to believe that two years ago, Team Europe's roster, they were all top like 10, top 15 guys, the, literally yeah. every single one. And this year they score exactly one win with Casper Root over Tommy Paul. That's it. Gets shut out regardless. And just kind of a follow-up to that, do you think that the tennis calendar can work with tournaments like the Davis Cup, Billie Jean King Cup on the women's side, and the Labor Cup all in harmony? Or do you think we're going to have to start contracting some of these events? <laughs> Well, I don't think they're going to work in harmony. Yeah, well, no. You've yeah. been around this yeah. game long enough. Oh, yeah. They're never going to work in harmony. Can they, can they survive yeah. together? Yeah. Um, you know, can they be best of enemies? Uh, <laughs> possibly. Um, listen, I think, it's a, I think it's a great question. 
I'm kind of at the point where I'm almost feel like we could draw the curtain down on Davis Cup. Mm. Um, I'm almost feel like it, it, for me, it's it's it, unless they change it dramatically, it's it's getting to the point of being an event that actually is in risk of being kind of laughable. I mean, where it's being held in Malaga this year with no Spain in the in, in the draw is you know what World Cup would ever host a, a, a World Cup without having their own nation at it. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous what's gone on. Um, and that's why I think Labour Cup, when you look at it over three days, selling out to the degree that they did, not necessarily with loads of home home players, just goes to show the success of that formula. Yeah. So that formula is successful. That's a, that's a keeper. Are the other two's keepers? I'm not convinced they yeah. are. Yeah, it's unfortunate with all the history of the Davis Cup and some of the moments we still get, like the generational differences, like, you know, the, the British guys we talked about last week, Murray and Draper together, all the fun moments on and off the court and, you know, the passing of the torch in some regard within your country. Yeah. But as far as the tennis went the on the uh, Laver Cup, it was exceptional, like we said, by Team World. And you do see which types of players thrive at these events. Francis Tiafo, Taylor Fritz, now Ben Shelton, obviously, they love these events, Mark. They love the team element of it. They love being surrounded by players that are going to raise their energy. I don't think it's a coincidence that certain players on the Team World side are doing well. Yeah, listen, you're 100% right. No question that those guys come into this kind of week and absolutely love it. They embrace it for everything that it is. Um, they couldn't be closer. It looks like on the side of the core, the info that they're giving each other is absolutely spot on. Chris Eubanks was spectacular on the side of the court. Obviously, throw him into the mix, how how good he's been in all facets of, of the game, not just between the lines, but obviously in the broadcasting booth as well. And he's taken that knowledge and who was passing it on. And, and that's why I say Europe Europe have got their hands full. And, and that's what's beautiful about this competition right now. You know, the Ryder Cup went through a period where in golf where it got very dull. The Americans were absolutely dominating and people were switching off. They weren't really in, engaged. And then obviously Europe came back and has made that competition vibrant again. From a mm -hmm. storyline, Labour Cup needed what's happened in the last couple of editions to, to actually showcase the fact that this competition is going gonna, is gonna to be something worth buying a ticket for coming to. And that team world with that nucleus of players being that young is going to be something that is going to be very difficult to stop over the upcoming years. And, and tennis yeah, at the moment is just in the best place <laughs> ever. I mean, I, 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 I kind of catch myself saying that on obviously we haven't seen much of Rafa this year Rogers obviously stopped and and there was a real period where he felt as though we're going to go into a bit of a, a black hole here and and try and make storylines make tennis mm -hmm. exciting and and we literally hit <laughs> one of the greatest periods in terms of who is going to come through mm -hmm. out of these group of players that we're watching and, and kind of dominate the landscape yeah, it's exciting. I, I can't echo that sentiment enough. And Rod Laver endorsing Ben Shelton, too. That's a, that's a, a weighty endorsement. <laughs> He's had a few endorsements better than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some good, some not so good. But, hey, we love to see it. Uh, well, and, look, Roger Federer, the, you know, one of the founders of this event was there. Uh, it was good to see him chat with Jim Courier in between matches, saying maybe in the future I could be a captain of this event. I think that might be a foregone conclusion. But, what was it like yeah. to see Roger at the event and still still involved in the game more than anything? Yeah, I think the fact that he's still in, involved in the game is obviously great for tennis, number one. I mean, he is just, he is a rock star. Um, he is one of those rock stars of tennis that when he's around, people go crazy. You you can still see the appeal that he has. It's very important for tennis to, to keep Roger involved in the game as well. Whatever avenues that he decides to take, whether it's just purely through the vehicle of Labour Cup or whether it's other things, you know, Roger being involved just puts the optics that much higher. You see his star status, you see him walking around and you see just, just how, how important he is. So mm -hmm. listen, I've never met anybody that seems happier, more optimistic, yeah. that just has this love of life, Mitch, yeah. that just radiates off him. And he is never different whenever I've seen him in, in the entirety of the last 20-plus years. Yeah, I think it was Leif Shiras who said back in the day Borg was one of those guys that you'd walk into a room and people would just stare at him. I think, Roger, would that be fair to say, has that same quality? 
where he walks in a hundred just a hundred percent he's got the same quality i mean it's like i said it's 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 crazy when he's walking around this event i mean it is it is obviously one of the great attractions for the mm. fans that's probably one of the reasons why some of them have come because he's been their idol for so long mm -hmm. they want to catch a glimpse of him he was super invested he was there every day he was doing absolutely everything around the scenes and around the park would all of us agree that we'd love to see him as captain sooner rather than later? 100%. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. More with Mark Petchy here on Tennis Channel Inside End, the veteran broadcaster and former British number one here on Tennis Channel Inside End. We've got a lot to discuss on the women's tour as well. Maria Sacri gets that thousand level title in Guadalajara, which, you know, there was a lot of adversity in her year in her recent major success run. We know the field wasn't the deepest for a thousand level event, but you still have to get the job done, Mark. And she did it and she found a way at altitude with some murky conditions to be Carolyn Dolhide in the final, Garcia in the semis. And we know confidence is key, and Sakri finally has something to work with here. Yeah, Mitch, you're absolutely right. Couldn't be happier for Maria. Obviously, uh, had a couple of small stints with her coaching, um, and what a, what a way to do it as well off the back of the huge disappointment that she suffered at the U.S. Open. Everybody knows the emotions. Listen, Maria wants it more than anybody else. She wants it... Um, she gives every ounce of her being every second of her day to tennis. She has sacrificed as much, if not more than anybody else out there. And, and part of that is the becomes with the pressure that obviously she puts on herself to try and make things happen. But the reality of the situation is that may well be the kind of lift that she needed in terms of a mm -hmm. tournament win that will make her feel a little calmer at the back end of even bigger tournaments when obviously the opposition is going to be a little tougher. And don't you think too, I mean, we're, we're full on junkies. Like we watch tennis all the time. A lot of people will ask on the outside after the U S open, like what not glorified, like what's the point? Like how is tennis still going? Like it's hard to find interest. My counter to that would be, this is the type of story, right? You build your year, you build for next year, you build momentum even after the U S open. So if she has a successful Australia and beyond, I will look back to this moment and say this is where some stuff really started. Listen, I think I think you're 100 percent correct. There's no question that for us that are as invested in the game as as we are, these are the kind of sidebar stories that that, that we look back on and 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 talk about the fact that if that tournament hadn't been there, where would she have found that confidence from? Because it would have been very hard to find it at the Tatoy Club in Athens on the practice court. <laughs> right. But the fact that she's found it now, she's even given herself a spring ball potentially to make Cancun and and obviously all to play for for the rest of the year. So so those those are very important for those type of players. They're important for us in terms of our storytelling of a tour. Mm -hmm. There is going to be an argument that a little bit mm -hmm. less is more for mm -hmm. tennis and and whether whether the season could end up shutting down in mid-October mm -hmm. would potentially leave a little bit more anticipation heading right. into a new season. But uh, as I said before, those are kind of great discussion points for mm -hmm. the people that are going to make those decisions um, are sitting in seven different seats. Yeah, a little bit different than us. Uh, still, wouldn't trade it at this point. Uh, Got to give props to Caroline Dolhide making the final, an improbable yeah. run for her, to say the least, and, and doing enough to really, you know, make the final. Obviously, she would have won the tournament, Mark. She would have loved that, but... This is the type of run that's going to set you up so well long-term, not just for confidence, but for ranking points, for money, obviously. What Dolhai did out of seemingly nowhere deserves to be fully commended. As you said, I mean, I think the talent was there, and I think speaking to people that know her a little bit better than I do, you know, they were always saying that, you know, the game's there. She's just got to kind of put all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, and, and that's what makes this sport so incredibly mm -hmm. difficult but exciting because you're never mm -hmm. quite sure 
which player that you believe in who mm -hmm. you see that talent is going to ultimately be able to find that week or that kind of that game mm -hmm. that suddenly realize it's going to work well i think whenever you've got sort of a little bit of those sort of lively conditions you've always got to keep your sort of uh, aspirations and expectations down for the mm -hmm. follow-up weeks just to see whether that mm -hmm. kind of works in certain other places but yeah. for her that will certainly be that kind of fillet of confidence that she's been lacking the way that she played yeah. there is potentially going to be kind of uncomfortable for a lot of a lot of the good players. Yeah, maybe this doubles renaissance too, having a little success on the doubles court, you know, having some net skills is yep. helping some players. I do want to give a shout out to uh, someone that made the semis but has been on a, on a tear recently. Sophia Kennan is back into the top yep. 31. She's 31 right now. You know, San Diego makes that run to the final, gets the semis here, but it had been building all year. All the injury issues, some confidence issues as well. But for her to get to this point, cumulatively, is very impressive. She still, still is a major champion. That's never going to go away. Hasn't turned 25 yet. There's still some great tennis in front of Ken, and we're starting to see signs of that player that was once there. Listen, I think Kenan's, you know, resume will tell you that once everything comes together from her body to her mind to her desire that she kind of has cleared the locker out and gets back in between the lines with just that one ambition and goal is which is to win tennis matches. She's simply too good for it not to happen. I mean, it's just a question of when rather than if. And 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 as you say, Mitch, it's been building kind of throughout the course of the season. Um, we kind of knew it was coming from from a, a, a big portion of the results that she had had. Um, and finally, everything's clicked. She She's a cut above the rest in terms of the way that she plays, the way that she competes. And, and when it all comes together, as it has done in recent weeks, um, the results are going to take care of itself. There's no need to panic for her. It's been remarkable to see the progression, how she stayed in the fight, obviously has had opportunities to tap out at times and just won't do it. So the, the, the desire is still there. You see it every time she plays. Well, got to get your thoughts on another controversial issue, some would say. <laughs> Uh, got the Asian swing that's in effect already started. Uh, Elena Ravakina was not happy with the quote unquote performance buys. She's a higher seed than Sakri, than Caroline Garcia, who played in Guadalajara. They receive buys because of the travel constraints. And, you know, look, there's, there's two sides to this, right? What is fair? And we can debate that. <laughs> and what was told to you or what you signed up for. And it sounds like Ravakina did. And I, and I understand her perspective, but it sounds like Mark G knew or at least had signed up for it. So, I don't know that it's something that she can argue post after the fact, but I think the bigger discussion is one that's valid to have. Yeah, I think that's. I think what you're saying is is absolutely correct. I think the reality is that they've been around um, and they know that there's a potential for the performance buys to be inserted into a draw. So that was something that seemingly was a known. The, the, the thing that I'm a little unsure about, was it a known that they were going to be used suddenly at this particular event? The fact that they were within the capability of the WTA and the tournaments to use was a known, but was it sort of actually conveyed to the players that, hey, listen, this criteria, whatever that, you know, semifinals, final win, we're going to use these performance buys for those players that are in the tournament the next week. And I and, and that's the bit that feels mm -hmm. a little grey at the moment from mm -hmm. what Elena's been saying, that doesn't feel as though that necessarily was absolutely crystal clear to her. Mm -hmm. The other argument to it is, are you penalising somebody like Rebecca whose performances have been better than those players over 12 months mm -hmm. to get the ranking that you deserve to therefore put yourself in a better position in the draw. So therefore you are entering that tournament on the basis that you feel as though your performances over 12 months warrant a buy rather than someone that's just had a great five days. And I think that's a pretty big discussion point for, for the players. Yeah, that, that's a very, very fair point in terms of what she's done all year and the tennis player, you know, past and present argument that, look, you pick your schedule, you deal with the repercussions of what your schedule is. The travel benefits is a nice gift, but is it fully deserved? I, I see the perspective. I know that she's already qualified for the year end. It wasn't the best second half of the year for her, but she's still a top 10 player with a lot going on. So another thing to talk about yeah. this time of year. Yeah, it's, listen, it's... Uh, look, I mean, again, I think that the the argument, you know, that that's uh, saying, well, she doesn't need to play these tournaments because she's mm -hmm. made Cancun is kind of a mute one. It's like, right. fine, don't play it. 
you know, um, if you don't want to play, if that's mm -hmm. your if that's your perspective, and you want to, and from a longevity point of view, there's a big argument to say that maybe some of the players that can qualify early for the year end champs don't play, mm -hmm. and and just go get yourself there. Obviously, you've got rankings bonuses potentially on the line if you don't play these tournaments for points that you don't pick up. If you end up being world number one at the end, you're going to obviously get a very nice Christmas present. Mm -hmm. You're still going to get a pretty nice <laughs> Christmas present even if you yeah. get to Cancun. But you know, yeah. what size of present are you looking for? Yeah. Which is what's determining you whether you go to yeah. Cancun. I think for me personally, Mitch, that like everything in tennis, it's not necessarily crystal clear. And I think something like this, which is very, very impactful on somebody like Rabakina, needs to be absolutely nailed down yeah. as in terms of what she should be looking at prior to the week before to see what's going to happen so that she yeah. doesn't sort of wake up with this bit of shock that that that's yeah. all i would say i'm not a completely anti them although boris becker what was it in 86 he ended up winning sydney tokyo and Paris in three different weeks in three different continents mm -hmm. without any buys and best of five finals I think in a couple of them as well so the reality is we've just created a very soft gen <laughs> yeah that's uh that's a common sentiment too the past generations will always say we've had it harder and in tennis they're 100 percent right that is for sure. Um, I want to get your thoughts wrapping up here with Mark Petsch here on Tennis Channel Inside in on uh, some other things. We've got some title winners just today, actually, on the men's side. Uh, Karen Hatchinoff wins his first title uh, in five years. He hasn't won a title since the Paris Masters. He's played over 100 events, and Hatchinoff gets the job done in Zuhai over Nishioka. So, again, not the most loaded field, but... Hatchinoff back in the winner's circle, I couldn't believe it was that long for him for such a talented player. Yeah, I mean, I knew it because obviously it was the talking point whenever he was making his big runs in recent times through the majors. So obviously that came to a, a, uh, an end recently because of the injuries that, that he's suffered. But he's played some great ball in majors in the last couple of years. And and so he's been he's been there or thereabouts. It's just been uh, you know a shame that he hasn't been able to put his hands on the silverware and obviously just get one of those kind of horrendous little sort of trivia questions yeah, out right. of the way. And I'm sure a few doubts for him, but one of the nice guys out there on the tour and and as i say somebody that's played fantastically well in the 12 months fully deserving of of, of the win and uh it'll be interesting again a bit like maria where does he go from here you know how mm -hmm. much confidence does that take what weight of uh of expectation on his own shoulders does that take off him can he can he really really go that next step mm -hmm. and uh, there's opportunities there semi-finals of both the u.s open in 2022 and this year's australian open so he can do it on the hard court we know that Alexander Zverev won today in Chengdu as well over Roman Safilin, a good three-set match there. And for Zverev, it's just that steady climb back into where he belongs, which is the top 10. And now, looking like the race to Turin is firmly within his grasp. Mitch, it's incredible how well he's played. It was one of those ones as well where I think midway through August, we were on Tennis Channel, start looking at his ranking, which was completely, completely skewed compared to where his live ranking was. And he was just sort of outside the world's top 10. And you were like, wow, you know, that's how good he is, is that he's managed to sort of pick up these wins sort of very subtly. And we've kind of not noticed. And he's already back close to being in the world's top 10 and obviously as you say he's gone that step further and picked up the title there he's he's played great tennis i mean credit to him i would imagine being that tall needing to be as uh, confident in your ankle with the way that that sasha loves to play from deep has taken an awful lot out of him just to get rid of the fear that's that's needed to play the way that he wants to play so all credit to him that he's managed to do what he's done and and once again just underlines what just a phenomenal tennis player he is can't wait to see the progression there as he gets himself, as I said, where he belongs. He's a top 10 player, and he's playing like it again. It's he's always good for a quote as well, so I don't <laughs> like, I, I like to see him yeah. somewhere around. You've got some rivalries now. <laughs> this is great. we got some people yes. that aren't just best friends. I love that. Uh, last thing with Mark Petschy, who's been very generous with his time. We're going to see some players return for their quote-unquote hiatuses from the U.S. Open. Holger is coming back. We're going to see Alcaraz on the women's side, Coco Gauff for the first time since she's won her first major title. What should we expect from these top players who are coming back, you know, different forms of health, different things have happened in their lives. What should we expect from some of these players when they return to the court? Yeah, well, that's, as you say, that's the lovely thing about this time of year. We're never quite sure, are we? Holger's obviously had some big issues physically. Um, 
seen from the videos that I was watching that he looks very sort of confident. He was talking about how much he was loving hitting his forehands. But, you know, tennis players are obviously, you know, at times can be just a little fragile if things aren't 100% right. Uh, as confident as Holger is, this is going to be a few tentative steps, I think, for him. I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't a huge success as he re-enters mm -hmm. the arena. Carlos, I have no doubts about he's going to come back. He's going to hit the ground running. He's done it every single time that he's had a little bit of time off and, you know, he still had a sensational season. He's still in the learning curve mm -hmm. of everything that he needs to do. And of course, Coco, don't call me Coco, call me champion. That is going to be fascinating to see her come back. And I just don't think it's going to be a problem. I've got to be honest. Um, one of the great sporting global stories of the year, the fact, the way that she went through the summer, I mean, it just had, everything that you would want about a, a blockbuster story. And she's um, she just seems so incredibly mature for 19 that I don't have any issues in my mind that she's going to come back. She's found the solution of the way that she needs to play. It's, it's going to be up to all the other players on the tour to kind of counter the way that she's moving the ball around, particularly on that forehand side. I don't know and I don't think we've seen a better athlete in women's tennis and that's something else that's going to be a problem for a lot of the players out there and plus the pressure's off she's done it she's she's won a major um you know she's going to be able to play with a certain amount of freedom that she wasn't mm -hmm. able to play with before mm -hmm. she was trying to seek that elusive goal sky's the limit she's a she's an absolute gem for the women's tour and I wouldn't be surprised if there's a few more trophies in the bag before she hangs up her rackets for the season it's a life-changing moment to win a major and we know she's able to handle this better than most, if not all. And, I mean, you said something there. you think best women's athlete ever to play tennis? I, I think she's the best women's athlete uh, ever okay. to play tennis. You have to remember, I know we. I said a tweet the other day, tennis loves to spend 50% of its life looking backwards, 40% of its life predicting the future, and 10% who's the GOAT. You know, <laughs> yeah. all, all yeah. of the things yeah. completely pointless. Yeah. Um, nice, to, nice to remember, uh -huh. nice to remember, nice to think about what's coming, but more of in a constructive way than trying to predict who's going to be sort of, mm -hmm. you know, the next number one. But you can't, you cannot tell me that tennis even when Steffi was around who I think in my mind was the second greatest female women's tennis player athlete of all time you can't tell me that the sport was played at the same speed back then that it is now mm -hmm. you know the sport moves on and I don't think that we should kind of always you know sort of try and kind of compare the current generation of players with ghosts because we can't do it they were phenomenal in their era they were the I think Steffi was the best in her era I personally think that Coco Goff looking at her right now with the speed that the game's being played at is the best female women's tennis athlete that we have ever seen okay wow that's the type praise and I don't necessarily disagree with it too and there's a lot more left in the tank for her uh, Mark Petchy, this has been great obviously generous with your time always a blast to talk tennis with you Hope to see you back on Tennis Channel soon. Uh, there is one thing, though, I wanted to get your opinion on quickly because I found yep. a picture. I need you to explain what's going on here in the screen. Oh, gosh. <laughs> if you could see in the screen right now what we're looking at, this photo. Okay, I'm oh, my goodness. <laughs> you pulled that out of the bag. That is, that, that's the sort of picture that should never see the light of day again. Um, that is. That photo was taken um, while I was still at school over here in the UK. I was uh, junior British number one, which doesn't sound like a big achievement to anyone, oh, yes. I'm sure. But the whole principle <laughs> of that that photograph was that I played all those other sports as well. Some a little bit better than others, okay. but I played all of them. So you've kind of got a squash oh, racket field on hockey? the left. You Is that put, field hockey? That's a squash. Sorry, say again. Mitch. Is that field hockey too? That I'm looking at. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you got you got you got you got cricket, which I played. I was actually wicket keeper. You won't know that in no. the states anyway. It's like a backstop in baseball. Um, you got squash. You got badminton. You got field hockey, which I absolutely loved. I was actually marginally uh, marginally good at that, unlike every other sport in this. Table tennis, uh, snooker, um, golf. Um, uh, in fact, the only thing that isn't in that picture is a tennis racket, because as everybody knows, I was pathetic at that. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, that's that's great. I was like, how many sports did this guy play? And how many do I know? That's a good test for the American listeners. Like, what do you even recognize in this photo? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but no, it's a nice throwback. We wanted to get that into the show. Mark Petchy, always a blast. Thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Insight. And we'll do this again sometime soon. Definitely, mate. Thanks a lot, man. Love being on. Thanks to Mark Petchy, a master of not just tennis, but apparently lots of other sports, but always can count on him to bring the heat and know what he's talking about in the world of tennis. So thanks to Petchy yet again. Won't be long before we chat on the podcast once more. And now we're joined by Joel Drucker, a tennis historian and one of the premier journalists in all of the sport. Drucker was very kind enough to sit down in person in the Santa Monica studios to discuss his upbringing in the game, several decades covering tennis, as well as comparing and why it's tough to compare different eras, certain players from the past we should appreciate more, the rock and roll boom of tennis players in the 70s, why the game is in good hands, and his current form as a recreational player who still loves to compete, loves to play tennis to this very day. Here's Joel Drucker now on Tennis Channel Inside In. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. On the Tennis Channel podcast, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios now being joined by one of the preeminent and one of the, you know, bucket list journalists I've been trying to get on this show too, Joel Drucker joining in studio. He's covered the game for 50 years, a California native that's played it for a long time as well and uh, is now the official historian of the International Tennis Hall of Fame along with the podcast host, of the show three with Gil Gross and Amy Lundy. Joel, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mitch. Thanks for having me. A lot of uh, lot of fun stuff to talk about. I think uh, I think there's a couple different places that we can start from, and I like to you know get to the origin story. I know yours dates back a while, but rather than kind of the the cliche where you started with tennis, I'm more curious what's kept you involved, and especially that period you know fresh out of college where you had other opportunities and. You stayed involved in the game, and it was so. It just seemed like it was something that you could never really quit. Well, I think I discovered. Um, I went to college as uh, thinking I was going to be a lawyer. I went to University of California at Berkeley, and then I learned. I decided when I was a sophomore, I wanted to be a writer. And a place like that, I studied history. I wanted to write about big ideas and culture and politics and all sorts of things. And then a month or two before I graduated, I had a chance to write for a local tennis magazine called Inside Tennis, and I wrote several stories for them, and it was almost like seeing the girl next door. It's like, oh, my, I was yeah. sent here to write about tennis. And I had a chance to either go to D.C. and do an internship for free at a program called Cal in the Capital. Okay. I would have done an internship. I covered this publication called Roll Call, mm -hmm. which is covering the hill. But that would have been a free internship. <laughs> Instead, I was given an offer, $850 a month, to work at Inside Tennis Magazine. And I did that. And that's where I met. I ended up meeting the woman I married. I ended yep. up meeting the person I wrote my first book about. So all these things happened, and I think for me, uh, tennis always looks out for me. Yeah. I did spend 10 years working in the corporate world of public relations. I, I, I um, and kept like a pinky toe in tennis during that time, writing right. for a couple of other magazines. But mostly it was, uh, yeah, since 1993, it's been more and more with the tennis well, it probably helped you having that, and maybe not break, but not being all the way in. It gave you perspective, kind of showed you the appreciation for what tennis meant to you, and also maybe taught you some skills too. I think there's a good lesson in there that you know not every path is the conventional school right to work at in your field. So I well, it helped that I was very yeah. much a liberal arts person and learned to see tennis kind of more, even though I'd been in it as a player, more culturally, mm -hmm. more in broader angles and broader rivets mm -hmm. and textures. So I think in a way, if I had just let's say, covered tennis for the high school and college mm -hmm. newspaper and c wanted to do it for a newspaper. Yeah. We've seen tennis just as it was purely right. instead of this way that I think I write about it that's much for a, a lot of layers. Well, timing, they say, is everything. And how much do you think the timing of when you were coming into your formative years with what tennis was doing? I mean, do you think you would have that same connection if you were 10 years older, 10 years younger? I was very lucky. I was born in 1960 and began playing tennis in 1972 in L.A. at a park, Stoner <laughs> Park, very close oh, yeah. to where we're sitting. This is yeah. the, I think these are the courts <laughs> closest to yeah. Tennis Channel's headquarters. <laughs> and um, I'm a child of the tennis boom. Mm -hmm. I never played a match with white balls, which my older friends <laughs> are amazed at. So I began to play in 1972, and this is a tennis boom. It's just happening, and it's live wire in L.A. Tennis is becoming 
cool. It's kind of coming out of its all white clothes, uh, amateur era. And it's on four networks. Four networks are airing <laughs> tennis all the time. So the game is exploding in LA. There are tons of notable tennis people around. Yeah, and I guess we were going to get to that, but that's a good point. You know, the California boom. What do you think it is? I mean, you're a no-cal guy. I see the Berkeley Tennis Club thing, and, you know, especially Southern California. The Hall of Famers that walk these hallways are all from, like, the same kind of area. But what do you think it is about here? I guess at least historically, the 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, why there was such a boom for top-flight Hall of Fame talent in well, California. Well, even before that, years before yeah. that, California had the weather advantage on the rest of the mm-hmm. world. There weren't as many indoor courts. There were hardly mm-hmm. any indoor courts. So in a way, just like Colorado would have an edge in skiing, Californians right. had an edge in tennis, and that set the tone through the 20s, 30s, 40s. And, I mean, you look at the history of the game, mm-hmm. um, like Jack Kramer, the great Southern California player, said to me once, he goes, uh, they had the clubs in the East, and we had the players. <laughs> and they would come from the West to the East yeah. and conquer. And then there's another mix to it, too, which is kind of the yeah. pioneer mentality. Right. You know, Californians are, tend to be solo. They're going to figure it out themselves. Uh-huh. They're not as corporate. And so <laughs> they want, so tennis clicks into that. And tennis yeah. in... Uh, in California, there isn't nearly as much of a gap between the parks and the clubs. Okay. Like That's, Billie Jean King, you grow up yeah. in the park, and then you get to play at a club, but you're really at the park. A lot of access. I think access is the big word. Yeah, I hope that stays the, the same, and, and just in this current day, we're seeing with Florida kind of becoming a stopping ground, too, and Coco Golf just winning it. And I think, you know, you would know more than me on this subject, but the elements are helping. The training methods in Florida, and if you're able to deal with the humidity and the heat there, that is setting you up to go the distance. No question. I think, though, with Florida, it's been a little bit more what I would call vocationalized. In other words, okay. the players who get into it are from the families and fathers and mothers mm-hmm. who are like, I want my kid in tennis from a young mm-hmm. age on a fast track. Right. And that's different than, I think, how it emerged in California. In California, it was more organic. Mm-hmm. Tennis was aspirational. Tennis was a thing that once you made it, you had a house with a pool and a court. Right. So there, there, It's good to see that there's no one way to make it, and it's good to also see these players and coaches give back in their home state so there's more options, I feel like, and I don't think there's a, you know, yeah, I think there's a correlation with how the young American generations have done well. They've gotten properly trained by some of the greats. But getting back to your, you know, tennis odyssey and everything, we talked about this via email about the different eras, and you're a historian, you're somebody that can kind of break down different eras. Pre-open era, why do you think it hasn't been covered and talked about? Why do you think younger generation, Gen X, Gen Z, doesn't quite know enough about what went on before 68? I don't think Gen X, <laughs> Gen Z knows much about what happened before 98. <laughs> yeah, or always. Yeah. I, think, I think it's just the way of the world. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has anything to do with this particular generation. I think it's just my experience as someone who loves history and makes living in that yeah. is that people tend to occupy the present into the future right. so the capacity for reflection whether it's well, pete sampras or yeah no and that's a good point i would just i would ask because i wasn't around so if we're going back like 20 30 years were there still was it discussed then like were people, were people talking about like more rod laborers okay more recent but did they know the generation yeah. 40 years before yeah that? it's true did someone in 1990 did a great player in 1992 know about jack kramer or Earl yeah Fiennes? it just seems like we're getting to a point when all these lists i mean obviously lists and greatness but not even ranking just discussions of the greats of the game it seems like we're cutting it off at rod laver is like player one we're letting rod laver <laughs> grandfathering rod laver <laughs> yeah, yeah we're maybe squinting an eye at pete sampras <laughs> And then all the other great players, and this gets to maybe you want to talk yeah. about this whole GOAT thing. Um, yeah. All the other players don't exist because the quality of play is so absolutely brilliant by Federer and Nadal. It Kovic. is, and that's where I draw the line is I was a child of the Sampras era, and my mom's whole side's Greek, so Sampras was my, my first guy coming up with it. And he's just kind of been pushed aside. And I get it. Like, these guys are, as you say, so beautiful in how they play. But there is, you know, and that's a generational thing, the older we get, you know. Well, there's a great line I read once. It's the golden age of sports ends when the athletes start getting younger than us. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Some people, you talk to someone. Federer was that for me, by the way. I mean, I'm in my mid, you know, early to mid-30s, and Federer retiring was like the, wow, like, this is it. Like, it's pretty much all younger than me now. Right, and you will never feel the same way about a younger player. Carlos Alcaraz could win 50 slams. Not the same, yeah. And so it's, yeah. Yeah, and, and I just, I, I look at that era with appreciation, but also fascination because, and part of this might answer my own question, there wasn't the media, there wasn't four networks, as you said, there wasn't journalists in the moment, there's great historians like yourself that are covering and going back, but there wasn't that 
round-the-clock investigative coverage that we have now. So maybe it's just lack of info why we don't know about these guys and girls. Right, but also lack of info. And also, though, I, I, I hate to say this, lack of interest. Mm. I mean, I think I, I've given talks <laughs> to teaching conferences about why study of history can make you a better teacher. But I know I'm swimming upstream with that. Yeah. People like, for example, a lot of teachers and parents talk to me about, well, it's the modern game. We've got to play the modern game, today's game. Yeah. I've heard some great sports coaches and, and influences in, in various sports, not just tennis, say that a lot of this stuff is kind of cyclical in a way where approaches will come back around where how do you beat a certain style? You do this and then you adjust. Well, to they that. come around better. Yeah. They yeah. cycle this way. Uh -huh. They cycle spiraling upwards because they don't, but they're not going to be certain things. For example, though, my one handed backhand <laughs> that I learned in 1972 yeah. from Tony Trabert is, is a nice shot for me. The one handed backhand is a limited deal. That's got to be cool, though. You learned from Tony Traver. Like, don't gloss over that. Like, you That's got to true. Learn that was that. pretty cool. I went to his <laughs> camp for four summers. I worked for him for two summers. And that was a great, that was part of being around LA. Again, there was a YMCA, again, pretty close to where we're sitting, <laughs> right here in West Los Angeles. And I met him, and my parents said, Oh, you can go to this camp. And camp then, it wasn't an academy, it was a three week mix of a summer camp in right. tennis. And these players, these former players, former coaches, in a lot of cases, Hall of Fame type players, they were just accessible, right? Like that you could just talk to them. You could work directly. Tony was at the camp every day. <laughs> and that's, and but you know how foreign that is Cup, today now? the Davis Cup yeah. captain when I was 15. <laughs> so that's a pretty cool thing. Oh, yeah. look, when yeah. I was 22, getting started in journalism, I left a note for Jimmy Connors at a tennis club to arrange an interview. And then a few hours later, I saw him as he was about to walk on the court to play his first round match. He's number one in the world. Yeah. So, all right, come, let's come by tomorrow at noon. And we scheduled the interview right then and there. Wow, that's, see, there... It's not all, it's not all better. I was going to say the access that's kind of been lost, but I get it. You know, it's become a bigger business, bigger everything, but you know, looking just kind of back at that pre open era and I'll ask you, who are some of the players that we should appreciate more players that you think would have held up if we obviously knew era and everything, but who are players to really monitor there? I think play, I think a play, several players who I think are of interest, the holding up thing is a whole complicated matter, but as far as to be learned from mm -hmm. and to be appreciated, uh, Ken Rosewall mm. is a fantastic player and uh, probably the second best Australian ever, if not, I mean, compared to Rod Laver. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, what he was doing at his age. That just didn't happen back then. Like, it's way more who, impressive, I think, even back then than it is now. No there are only three players yeah. who've won slams in their <laughs> teens, 20s, and 30s. Oh, yeah. And that's Nadal, Sampras, and Ken Rosewall. He won the French at 18 and 33, and I don't care what people say about speed of ball, speed of movement, mm -hmm. physicality. Mm -hmm. You win Roland Garros when you're 18 and you win it from your 33, mm -hmm. you labor in the finals. Yeah, it's crazy to think that. And, you know, I do think Alcaraz will probably add his name to the list because I thought 19, as time went on and I heard that stat a few years ago, you kept thinking, wow, the teen's going to be the hardest part now. So you have to get one before you're 20. Um, that said, the other name I was going to bring up to you is just from what I've read. I'd love to have watched Pancho Gonzalez play. Gonzalez is another one who's often thought of. Gonzalez has gotten more um, verbal and written attention than mm -hmm. Rosewall because he was a commanding figure. Yeah. And for a while, he was better than Rosewall, and he was charismatic and tempestuous. And <laughs> yeah. Had a lot going for him. Very, a lot of a great serve yeah. and his own form of longevity. Yeah, I mean, you, you see those athletes, right, that are described as the physical freaks, just towering people for their era, and that's why, you know, he would have been one, and that's why, like, I think we're on the same page. It's really so hard to compare er eras in any sport. I don't, and that's why, I mean, I'll say it, when it comes to the GOAT, I'm a conscientious objector. I don't think it's the right question. I don't even think it's, I, I think it's, and it's funny, and people who bring it up, think they're engaging with tennis history. They're doing just the opposite. Yeah. They're engaging in recency bias. Do you think it's fair, and I agree with that, but do you think it's fair to compare within the era? To a degree. To a degree. To a degree, but in the other words, what, you know, when I was 10 years old, I thought Joe Namath was the greatest quarterback ever, and I had barely heard of Johnny Unitas, much less Otto <laughs> Graham. Yeah. It's like, I suppose that that's possible. However, what's, what I've noticed, and maybe this has implications for the yeah. podcast I do with Gil and Amy, I know everyone, you can, you can advocate this six ways to Sunday, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, but it's better. And it, and it comes down to a lot of emotion. Yeah. So it's hard to be rational. Right. It. I remember, you know, growing up in my family, a lot of boxing fans, the, the grandparents and the parents generation, Ali and Joe Lewis, those debates happening. How are you ever going to prove that? The, the thing with well, that's the, a cross here. Yeah. Cross errors. Yeah. I, with, with like this era of the big three and, and obviously there's different factors who's pushing who where you're born just necessarily, but also, 
I don't think it's. I, I think you can acknowledge accomplishments. Like Djokovic ha- is going to have the accomplishments. Oh, Novak! Yeah. What Novak has proven. Well, <laughs> Novak and Rafa yeah. eventually did. It's funny because for a long time, people who were into that were calling Federer the goat, and yet at a certain point, the data-driven <laughs> case for Federer mm-hmm. was ended. Yes. They all out yeah. quantified him. Yeah. So then there are, there come other factors. There mm-hmm. comes the. Oh, most like to watch play factor. Well, yeah, that's the play I mean. for my life factor. That <laughs> one I have enjoyed the most. But yeah. these are not these are not truly. I mean, why? What's what's the point of ranking things? Right. You see it a little bit with the women's side too, and it, it's it's interesting because it's like, yeah, okay, Serena is unbelievably unquestioned, one of the best ever. But if she played Steffi Graf, I'd want to know what surface it's on, what the condition. You know, it could go either way. Well, that but that's the generational yeah. challenge match. That's yeah. different than the who's yeah. better. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I'm not <laughs> comparing Mozart with the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of there's a lot of options out there. I just I, think that stuff. Yeah. What I like learning, what I like learning, and I'm really lucky. I've interviewed people as far back as Fred mm-hmm. Perry, who won Wimbledon in 1934. Oh. And I like learning what is actually happening in their time who was hard to play and mm-hmm. what their deal and their ball was and what it was like playing this guy. That's now good. I'm learning something. The other stuff is science yeah. fiction. Learning who the players think are the hardest to play. That's a of very their good time. Yes, that's For very example, good. you talk to the Australians and a lot of them will say they'd have preferred playing Laver to Rosal, even though Laver was allegedly was better mm-hmm. because Laver's a plus, yes. But if Laver was off, you might have a chance. Rosal was never off. The, yeah, that's a good point. The 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 uh, female side. I just want to bring up the name that I don't think it's enough recognition by the current generation is Monica Seles. Monica Seles, for sure, absolutely. <laughs> that's just and her accomplishments, especially as a teen, like we're just out of this world. Eight slams in a teen. It's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, so there, there's a lot, but. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. More with Joel Drucker here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Nice discussion about him covering the game and where we are current and past. Always got to appreciate that. Your, your career, though, and, and getting back to it, you know, the Tennis Channel connection, you've been one of the premier people here. I mean, the, this network doesn't go m- back much further than you've been associated with it. I was doing stuff for this network before it aired. I was working <laughs> um, with the founding team, and soon enough, Larry Myers became head of production and uh, we worked together a number of shows, so I was doing work with Tennis Channel, the center court with Chris Myers, which yeah. was like a, an in-depth one-on-one interview show that I was the co-producer of, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really fun. That's 03, 04. This is before Tennis Channel was yeah. one of the majors. Yeah, and you had Wimbledon primetime on your list through yes. 15? So 15 was my first no, Wimbledon no, through, here. Through, through, seven, through okay. 17. Through 17, through, yeah. okay. So I started here at 15, Wimbledon primetime then. No, it was... You know, it's, it's good to have, like, a presence, especially on the grounds for these tournaments. And going to Australia, too, which isn't an easy flight, but you probably got super used I've to now it. Been, you, I've now been to and from Australia yeah. about 24 times, so wow. that's pretty uh, fun. That's a neat. Each of these slams has their own mm-hmm. feel to it, their own smell. I mean, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. When we work the long hours we work in TV, you, you it's kind of the sense of smell kicks in because you're tired. Mm-hmm. And each of them has their own vibe to it. And of all the eras, and you can go all the way back, you obviously have the affection for that rock star era in the 70s when they broke through. And it starts with Connors, obviously. But, I mean, the personality-driven. I I also do think it's special who they were. It was just the combination of everything. Media started to converge, but also you got these towering personalities between Connors and Macaron, Bork, and even Vetus and some of these names. I mean, and the women, you had Billie Jean King yeah. and Chris Everett. I think, I think the game, that was part of the boom. These people emerged and the game was popular and they were, they were winning big matches and they were kind of creating what mm-hmm. the tour looked like, whether it was Billie Jean King and the women's tour and, mm-hmm. and Connors created the idea of what a compelling tennis player is. Yeah. I mean, everything we want tennis to be now, 
has its roots in Jimmy Connors with his emotions, with right. his connection to the crowd, with his passion. You wrote the book, Jimmy Connors Saved My Life, and, and I wanted you to expand on that, the lessons of not just tennis. It's how to approach things with that focus, right? Like how, look, right or wrong, whatever you think about what he did, he did everything 100%. Well, it also has to do with wanting to hit it out of the park. Yeah. With wanting, I mean, with wanting to hit for the lines in life, and that's what mm-hmm. Connors helped me see. And that it was also, yeah. you know, I grew up, fairly comfortable family in the flatlands mm-hmm. of West LA and and I was going to go to college and you could be a lawyer or a doctor and kind of do that but you also with Connors you saw that it was visceral and it was kind of personal yeah that it needs to be personal I mean there's a story I write about in my book about beating someone who wouldn't play with me and I didn't like that he was ducking me and that ticked me off and I and I realized to beat him I was going to have to do something and it, it was the first time I saw that oh, tennis matches aren't just about hitting balls better. It's yeah. personal. Yeah. And I wrote, I said, it's the first time I tasted blood <laughs> on a tennis court, and I liked it. Yeah, I love the stories about him. I think he wrote about one in his book where, you know, the comebacks for him, five sets at Wimbledon when he's down 2-0, 2-0 in a break or double break. It's like, just give me an opening. Find some way to make it personal and to turn this into more than a tennis match. I think well, there's I think with Connors, though, at Wimbledon, it was also when he was down a match with Michael Pern for his 1-6, 1-6, 1-4, it's also just a way to win points. Mm-hmm. There was nothing, there was nothing, um, no antics with mm-hmm. Pernforce. There was right. no yelling right. at the He's at Wimbledon. Right. So right. He's just going about the business of toothpick by toothpick yeah. getting back into a match. It was a great era for sure. Uh, and I know you got to overlap with a few of them. Was it a pro-am or you're playing with McEnroe against Connors? I did that once. I played with McEnroe in a pro-am and we were, we, it is a team we had a team McEnroe, and we would each play like two or three points with him and rotate in. And, and he's like, and he's like John, like that's no gimmick. He's that competitive, whether it's a pro am or. Oh no, no, no? these guys okay. in pro ams, okay. they, they understand how to modulate okay. their, that's good. their deal. They all do that. I've been in enough pro ams and been on enough what I call customer tennis things to see okay. well, that's how, good. how they do what they do. And so yeah, I had to serve. We were serving for the title, and I had to serve to Connors. And I'm serving to him in the deuce court. And I say to Macro, where should I serve? He goes, serve to your forehand and get into the net fast. <laughs> so I hit the serve, and Connors hits his yeah. inside-out forehand, and I'm late for the volley. and hit the volley long, and Macro says, that's the worst volley I've ever seen. But on the next point, the guy was a civilian like me, and being left-handed, <laughs> I hit like a, a nice uh, wide serve okay. in the court. Well, that's good. You got that experience there, and it was, it's good that it's good that Macro didn't completely blow up. But it's th- those moments are just you know, no, no, Macro. He, he's not there. He's yeah. not going to do that in a problem. Yeah, that's good. Um, and yeah, you've what you still play four or five times a week, yeah, three to Try. five times okay. a week. Yeah, that's yeah. hey, that's pretty impressive. It's just love of being out there. Are you are you fine tuning your game? Absolutely, while you do this? absolutely. Nice. I'm 63 years old, and I have friends who say, Well, how can you improve past 30, <laughs> 40, 50, 60? Yeah, and I think they're just this is the thing about this game you can self exonerate any way you want, yeah, because you can it's just you, and if you want to create your own <laughs> yeah. narrative for what you think you are as a tennis player. You can yeah. do that and say, oh, how could you improve past 30, 40, 50? And there are absolutely things. I took yeah. lessons for a number of years from a, a guy named Steve Stefanke in Napa, whose younger brother, you may have heard of Larry, mm-hmm. coach, and Steve and I still talk, and there are things okay. I, I work on and th- things I think of. Absolutely. Wow. Well, no, I, and I've read up on, on your game and your style, and you're out there to win. You're not trying to, you know, give anyone pace or just, you know, you're out there to disrupt and to frustrate. We, everyone should disrupt. That's the, <laughs> yeah. that, Martina Navratilova told me a yeah. great thing. When I'm left-handed and play like a, a bad recreational version of like a John McEnroe <laughs> game with lefty spins and coming to the net <laughs> and all this stuff. But everybody should disrupt. That's what consistency yeah. is disruptive. Power is disruptive. Court position is disruptive. Right. And I think when people see the game that way, mm-hmm. they get over it's it's – Things like, oh, I'm just hitting balls. To me, winning is a desired outcome that you can't control, but competing is the process. Right. And so why not compete? Why not think about what the guy doesn't like? I mean, that's sports. Right. And getting the chance to, you know, not only play in these prom events, but you mentioned you went to Newcomb's tennis fan. It's John Newcomb's camp for two decades, basically. I'm going again in October. I've been to that camp. What's that experience like? That is an incredible experience. That is kind of like, how do I put it? I guess given what it's happened, it's like the labor cup for civilians. Okay. So imagine playing on a team and you're being coached by legends. So I've I've played matches, other matches are going on, and then other matches start to end. Next, you know, I'm playing a match and I've got twelve of my teammates watching me and twelve of my teammates watching the opponent, and he's being coached by Roy Emerson, I'm being coached by John Newcomb. How does that work? I mean, that sounds amazing. How does that work for you and your game and then seeing other games when there's a little pressure on there's well, the people it watching? It helps me see the game in many ways. It yeah. helps me go through the 
physical process of trying to surf for a match when these people are watching <laughs> me, including a legend. Yeah. Then it also helps me understand how to write about the game. It's like I'm never. You're never going <laughs> to see me say a guy gagged. Yeah, and that's that's such a good point because no one understands what they're going through unless you're out there playing in front of twenty thousand people. Well, right, and so if I can if I can sort <laughs> yeah. of like get a yeah. smell of that yeah. in front of twelve people, yeah. that might help. And then and then there's the other challenge, which is neat, which is very different than tennis in America, which is you play your match, but then you've got to um, go watch your teammates play. Mm-hmm. You can't just go home like a lot of American players do. Oh, I played yeah. my league match. I'm going home. Right. You got to root for people. You got to cheer them on right. no matter how good or bad they are. I do think the influx, again, maybe cyclical, but this new influx of college tennis on the pro tour is mostly good. And I think it's helping that. I mean, we saw it with the labor cup, but it's good to see people that are used to some rowdier environments and used to the pressure. And I do think that an element, maybe not full team, but like, it's good to have an element of some camaraderie in an individual. game. I agree. I think people, yeah, I think, uh, like seeing that in Labor Cup and seeing the more college players, that's been a nice part to see in tennis, that there are many paths. Yeah, it's it's been beautiful to watch. Uh, before we wrap up with Joel Drucker here on Tennis Channel Insight, and you mentioned it, the level right now is just outstanding. It's it's easy to say and it's cliche, but the game does appear to be in good hands. It is, and, and we, um, yeah, it is in good hands. We, uh, my colleagues, Gil Gross and Amy, mm-hmm. we talk about that a lot on our show, three, yeah. and uh, we enjoy seeing the different styles and the different ways these um these players are playing. The, the you see like someone like Alcaraz has brought in more all court tennis, and and you're seeing kick serves and volleys yeah. and drop shots and a whole mm-hmm. explosion of tactics. Different styles is great because we don't want to see. I mean, we're selfish sports fans, but we don't want to see the same style played. And it's great for matchups. And it's great for adjustments too. I think when you see these rivalries like we saw with Djokovic and Alcaraz, it's the tactical changes from match to match Absolutely. that really get us excited. Absolutely. You know, there's no same match. There's no same version of it. Um, you know, you mentioned them. How is it working with Gil and Amy? I got to know them a little bit. I oh, see Gil terrific. around. Yeah. Uh, they're great. Yeah, Gil, yeah. Is, Gil is, uh, is young, out of, uh, <laughs> fairly recently out of Syracuse, yeah. and really understands. He's kind of the glue that he's, the, he's our host. Yeah. And uh, Amy's terrific journalist, loves mm-hmm. the game, enthusiastic recreational yeah. player. And we each bring different things to it from who we yeah. are. From Gil is probably much more attached aware of the mm-hmm. contemporary game. We all are, but Gil, mm-hmm. maybe even more so. Amy's done a lot of great work that involves data analysis and yeah. seeing how patterns play out. And, right. and I'm kind of like, what am I? I'm like the grand old whatever. <laughs> yeah, hey, you know what? I mean, Gil did go to Syracuse, right? Yeah, I'm kidding. He brings that up. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, a lot to do with them. They're great people. I, I did want to wrap with some of your other stuff too. The international tennis stuff, being known as kind of the historian there and working with you know, another proud area that I, I still need to get out that way to Rhode Island, but what's it like kind of being in that role and also digging into the real history of the all-time, all-time greats? I think it's fairly an honor, and it's really compelling. One thing I did at the end of tw- in December 2019, I went on a tour of interviewing several tennis legends to get their definitive oral histories before they died, and that was Dick Savitt in New York, Tony Traber and Butch Buckholtz in mm. Florida, Dennis Ralston and Nancy Ritchie and Cliff Drysdale in Texas. So it was this whole mm-hmm. swing from New York to, to Austin. And uh, three of them have since deceased. Mm. Uh, Dick Savitt, Tony Trabert, and Dennis Ralston. And these were all people I knew well. Tony Trabert had been my mentor. Um, I, I knew these other gentlemen well. And to be able to prepare and conduct kind of a, a one or two hour you know, mm-hmm. deep dive into their life and times and bring up anecdotes and experiences was incredibly rewarding and meaningful. No, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. And it's great work that you're, you know, fighting to keep their memories and their words alive because we can't, you know, we can read stuff like yourself and others, but hearing it from them, it's, it's valuable and it's not around forever. As well, we unfortunately, no. these things we've done yeah. also, these oral histories, the more younger players, like when they're about to get into the hall of fame, I did one a few mm-hmm. years ago in Australia with Lee Na mm-hmm. for about an hour. We've done them with Mary Pierce and Mark Woodford. And it's, mm-hmm. I credit Anne-Marie McLaughlin of the hall of fame and yeah. uh, Todd Martin when he was running it just, making this happen and seeing how we need to document these things and have them as for, for pieces that we might want to mm-hmm. do now, but also for people coming to see the history. Yeah, no, it's so true. Hall of Fame is going to be interesting these next couple of years of who yes. gets in and, you know, when a couple players win both of, win a lot of the slams, it's going to be tough, but some good contenders and some good candidates there. Uh, Joel, this was a blast. Do you have anything? I know we see you on tennis.com a lot, writing tons of outstanding columns. Anything else on the horizon? Well, lots of stories, lots of events, different matches, tournaments, uh, 
uh, long-term stories that are more thematic than match stories. I mean, Ed McGrogan, Matt Fitzgerald is great <laughs> to work with. They're always, uh, we're always pushing ideas in front of each other and we're writing us a lot of volume, as you know. Oh yeah, the, those guys are great. And uh, it's, it's a well-oiled machine here. Joel, this was an honor. I truly mean that. It's a, a, I'm a huge fan of all your work and your podcast with Gil and Amy. Check out three and uh, make sure you follow Joel Drucker on tennis.com, outstanding columns and Check out all of his books. I can't even, I, you wrote so many, I can't even no, list them I've all. Written, I've written two books. I wrote a book, okay. The Jimmy Connors Saved My <laughs> yeah. Life. And then I, um, I wrote a book about my uh, my late wife and our marriage that also has tennis. It's called Don't Bet On It, which the title, you have to see, has a tennis connection to it. Okay. I'll leave that for another time. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on Tennis Channel Insight and always appreciate it. Thank you to Mark Petchy and thank you to Joel Drucker for appearing on Tennis Channel Inside In. It was a pleasure to talk to two titans in the industry. If you like this podcast, and I hope that you do, you can find Tennis Channel Inside In on all your favorite podcast platforms, whether that be Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, iHeart, Google. Just search Tennis Channel Inside In. The show will pop up. You can subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review and have automatically downloaded episodes set up to go right onto your phone, your tablet, whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. Tennis Channel Insight and can make that happen. We're on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast for the entire catalog of our outstanding lineup of shows. And remember, next week, every Thursday, a new episode of Tennis Channel Inside In, which is also available on YouTube by just searching Tennis Channel Inside In or checking out the Tennis Channel YouTube page. My name is Mitch Michaels. Thanks again to both guests. Thanks again to everybody out there for listening. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.